This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope it's a good experience for you and that it helps to build a little extra recovery capital. This episode is the edited version of a live stream that my co-host Mary and I recorded and posted on our YouTube channel on April 2nd, 2022. Our guest was Kimiko G from Savannah, Georgia, where she attends secularly formatted AA meetings. In this conversation, Kimiko talks about her practical approach to recovery and the importance of meeting people where they are and respecting their own individual paths to recovery. But before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery that you can find at soberlink.com bbs. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention Beyond Belief Sobriety when ordering Soberlink and you'll receive $50 off their device. And now, episode 263, Kimiko G. Hi, this is a new thing for me. I've never done a, a podcast before. Thank you, Mary, for inviting me. And thank you, John, for having us here. It's a gorgeous setup. So, yeah, I'm coming in from Savannah, Georgia. And if you had told me, okay, so I've lived here for four and a half, four, three and a half years, almost four. And um, if you had told me I'd visit Savannah or even live here five years ago, I'd have been like, what? <laughs> I'm from... Um, I'm from New York originally. I grew up there. I was born in Brooklyn and uh, grew up in New York City, Queens, Long Island mostly, and a little bit in Ohio when my dad moved there for a few years. But we came back and went to high school there. And I love that there's a timer in the corner. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, and what I was saying to to Mary and to John is I haven't had to tell my story in a, in a long time. And it's a good thing, just like sponsoring is a good thing, because it reminds me of where I came from and how I got here. I love to say, hi, I'm Kimiko. I'm in recovery instead of AA now. And I like that this includes the whole recovery community and the thing I love most. And I think it's the strongest, biggest part of my life now about secular AA is how inclusive it is. I don't know if people like that word, but I do. I am, if you can tell from my name, Kimiko. Oh, my last name is Gelman. My married name is Prosky is that I am, um, you know, I'm by my very nature, two very different things. I I grew up in a very uh, secular and somewhat in some parts of my family, uh, Jewish family. Uh, My dad is a Jewish guy from Brooklyn. And uh, my mom was from Okinawa, Japan. And I didn't really grow up with her. I had kind of a tumultuous childhood. She got sick mentally when I was young, before I was three. And I went to go live with my Aunt Noga, my dad's sister, who's, um, you know, very Jewish. And I learned all about Jewish traditions. Pesach is coming up. Passover is coming up really soon. So I, uh, Judaism, the traditions give me uh, comfort. They remind me of my Aunt Noga, my cousin Ezzy and Charlie, all the kids like my cousins I grew up with. But, you know, me and my brother started out, I'm starting into my story already, um, uh, in a very, it was kind of violent and it was a lot of mental illness and nobody knew how to handle it. My dad came from his father, left, went back to Israel um, when he was young and he was raised by a single mom. 
in New York City and very hard, you know, lonely life. And so he didn't really get a lot of tools on how to be a dad or even what partner to choose, you know. And while my mom had a big heart and a loving nature, she was mentally ill and very isolated in Brooklyn when he, my dad brought her there as a young man. And um, I, she ended up leaving us, going to a hospital and after much drama. And my brother and I went to go live with my aunt, where I had three great years. And then my dad remarried my stepmother, who raised me as her daughter. And she's from Guyana, which is South America. And uh, she's since converted and she's like, uh, you know, American as can be, but like the, the, her background is from another country. And so I've had a lot of different influences in my life. You know, growing up in New York, the only people who looked like me and my brother were me and my brother in my family. (laughs) I did not grow up with my mom. So uh, that was just a very suppressed uh, part. You know, they didn't tell me much about my mom growing up. All I knew it was something to be ashamed of, which I really identify with ACOA people about that, like the denial when it comes to alcoholism and the the, like it doesn't exist and what what you're feeling isn't isn't really. Uh, a good feeling and to just not talk about it and to act as if everything's great, which is what I learned how to do. I learned to smile and be the, the, the people pleaser and all of those things growing up so that I could survive or thrive really is how I thought of it. And um, I ended up using food as what I think is my first addiction um, to calm myself, TV, reading, anything to just check out if I felt like it was too unpleasant and um, or my feelings were not acceptable. I particularly didn't like uh, violence or screaming and yelling and stuff like that, but I grew up with a lot of passion in my family. Um, they're very loud, passionate people and and loving too, but but uh, I learned to not express that because even though it was there, um, that it wasn't safe. And so I grew up with that. And then I finally found an outlet when I was younger to uh, express myself creatively, creatively. And I also learned how to meld into whatever was around me, just figure out what you needed. And I would kind of do that. I would be that person. Like when we moved to Ohio, I was 12 and I had a thick New York accent. I'm from Long Island, right? Um, They made a lot of fun of me. And and so I lost that accent pretty much, except for when I'm talking to my dad or when I go back to New York or if I listen to a lot of things, New Yorkies. And, and, and so like that kind of thing, I felt like Zelig, if you know that Woody Allen movie, I would just kind of change. I grew up in this like uh, really urban neighborhood. So I became really urban and tough, you know, whatever it took. And um, it was really hard to find out who I was. And lo and behold, I became in the performing arts. (laughs) No surprise. And I like to entertain people, but behind a character, you know, not really me. And, uh, you know, I had some really strong early success as a young person, I got out of my house as soon as I could and started living on my own in Manhattan and then with a guy. And that was probably another addiction of mine, you know, relationships. And I have to give myself credit. I didn't do very unsafe relationships. I was in unsafe situations, but I I, I had safe partners, kind of. They took care of me to the point where I didn't, you know, anyway, they were took, but I just, I, um, and I'm coming to my alcoholism pretty soon. But the guys and then work, I became a very a lot of success, almost too much success young as soon as I started. And so I was addicted to that, like work. And um, I was living life on a very high, intense level. That's also another addiction, like, you know, just being so busy and so intense that I don't have to think and I don't have to be still. I did not know how to be still. And then my mother died. Uh, and that's, I think when my drinking, cause it would be like, I'd spend a year smoking pot. I was with a guy I didn't like, so I'd smoke pot cause he smoked pot. And then I would could obliterate really relating to him. You know, it was food. It was a little bit of alcohol, but my alcoholism where I couldn't, I find something work, which had saved me always. I would be drinking while I was working. That was my last, you know, yet for me. And then I started drinking when my mom died, um, that relationship has always been a painful one for me and one I had to still coming to terms with, you know, because I became a mother. Anyway, 
once she died, I started drinking and I would stop. I was able to stop and and put it to something else. I got, I found a, a, a wonderful person. Uh, my, my second marriage, you know, I had a crazy earlier t- in my twenties, but uh, a person who was very stable and safe, which may be another addiction of mine. As long as it's safe, it's okay. <laughs> but he, he's not an addiction. It, 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 that was a good relationship, but I thought, you know, I'm not going to do any more acting. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be a married woman. I had like a Volvo station wagon. I was living in a very, in a suburb of Los Angeles. I had stopped everything but being a mom because that was a big thing for me um, to, to really devote that. But I still wasn't happy. And I still, I, after I, as soon as I could, as soon as it was okay, you know, I'd stop breastfeeding. I was going to start drinking again, slowly but surely. And, you know, it got to where the most important thing in the world, I was endangering. I was driving with my kid in the car. He was little, he was two and a half. And it was the one thing I, I thought, you know, I was going to do perfectly and I was going to do my best and I wasn't going to let anything get in the way of that. And to let that be threatened in any way, to drink instead of being fully present with my kid. Um, you know, and it wasn't like I wasn't trying my best. It wasn't like I wasn't, uh, fully committed. So when I think of those times, I was very hard on myself after I got sober, like, how could I have done that? And what is the long-term damage for my child? And, you know, and I, I got a lot of solace from talking to other moms that my child sees my striving that, you know, I'm sober today and I really have a soft spot in terms of uh, being a sponsor to women with uh, babies and children of all ages. And uh, I learned a lot of compassion for myself because the level of beating myself up and the level of, of it's subtle. It's like my alcoholism. It'll go away and then it'll come again. The minute something happens with my son that I feel like, and that's all about me. I was talking about that beforehand with uh, Mary. It's all about me when I'm worried about my son in so many ways. I first have to deal with that. And then I can deal with the situation, the next right thing in terms of what to do with my son. And and luckily I have a great sponsor and have great fellows in the program where I can do that. But anyway, getting back to when I was drinking with my three, he was a three. He had just turned three. Um, It was in 2006, October 15th. I was in, I went to therapy because I thought it was something else. And I'd been at therapy before and she was an Al-Anon and she recognized an alcoholic right away. <laughs> as soon as I was honest with her, I'd been going to therapy for a while. But as soon as I said, I am drinking and I can't stop, she, we, we, you can't stop even if you want to stop. Well, I don't want you coming back here until you've been to an AA meeting, walked around the block, maybe go someplace spiritual. Those three things you cannot do until you've done, you can't come back here. I was really insulted and I thought, you know, fuck her, but I actually did it because I'm nothing if not compliant and I want to be thought of as a good girl and I don't want anybody to say that I didn't do my best. So I did it that day and um, I called up AA. I was living in Los Angeles at the time and I walked into a woman's, uh, I walked into a mixed meeting, which was not great, but that person on the phone said, there's a meeting right away. You can go right now. And so I went to that meeting and I heard just enough and I I didn't like that meeting. Just so you like, that's in case you're newer and you don't like that meeting, there's other meetings. It's like, doesn't represent all of AA and, and LA, you know, has a thousand meetings a day, literally, at least when I got sober and I got sober in the Valley of LA, uh, the Valley section. And the next meeting was the one closest to my house that I had driven by and I'd seen people standing out. And it was a woman's meeting. And I was like, well, that's a sign. I'm going to go there. And they, and I never left from that moment on. Um, they were very welcoming and loving. And they didn't, when they looked at me, they didn't look at me the way I looked at me, which was full of shame and, and disgust that I had got myself in that position. Um, and it was the one thing I didn't want to be. It was insane, like my mom. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I went, started going to this woman's meeting. I eventually became the secretary of that meeting. You know, I went to 90 and 90. There were many meetings at that church that was within walking distance of my house. And in LA, nothing's within walking distance. And that does a lot. So, and uh, that community in the Valley was a wonderful community of which I'm still a part of. Um, and then uh, my husband got a job at SCAD, 
which is uh, Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah, Georgia, four years ago. And we decided to make the move here. And, you know, I had become very comfortable in my AA in Los Angeles. I had a great community, particularly a smaller community of women who were more Buddhist, let's say, called the Loving Kindness Group uh, that we used, we set up. Um, that includes my sponsor at the time. And my sponsor, I was thinking, should I move to Savannah or not? And I talked to her and I was like, oh, I might have to move to Savannah. Like I wasn't wanting to go. <laughs> I had everything there um, in LA, including my work. And uh, she said, oh, well, my mom is got sober in LA and she lives in Savannah and my sister, it's a great sober community. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. My own sponsor. I mean, that's just weird. So I went and I uh, went to some meetings that her mom had gone to and her sister were going to. And like every resistance I had to it was, um, was, was answered. And it was like, no, you're supposed to be here. And so I came here kicking it, but like, they, but I, I did, even though I had a little contempt prior to investigation that they talk about in the big book, I still had enough muscle to go, okay, I'm feeling this, but let's investigate. Let's go there. Let's, you know, see what it's like. And, um, and I got to some meetings. I went to something called the clubhouse there. And my, I think it must be my second clubhouse meeting. This girl came up to me and said, you might be interested in this new meeting that's starting. And it was the secular AA women's meeting, um, just getting its little legs in, in Savannah. And I went to that and I was like, Whoa, I like my sponsor was speaking at that. My current sponsor, Mary, all these people were there. And I slowly, but surely, even though I was like, this doesn't, is this like AA? You know, I was scared. I was scared. It didn't, do the 12 steps, like as it was written in AA, it seemed a little loosey-goosey to me. And, um, and you know, my first thing to any change is like, just like Savannah, like, I don't know this. And it's not like what I think. And I, I recognize enough of that now to go, okay, I'm going to have that feeling. I'm going to listen, but I'm also going <laughs> to investigate. And the thing about Secular AA. And I have to say, I have more sponsees. I'm much more involved in AA. I ended up starting a woman's secular off, like an offshoot of that uh, on Wednesdays at noon, um, right before the pandemic. Like I've never started my own meeting before where I kind of found that, you know, with Mary's help, with every, of course, you'd never, I never do anything without help and advice and counsel and running things by, but I had never been responsible for something like that. I've never taken that kind of action. And it strengthened me in AA. It it strengthened me, my sobriety, not in AA, just sobriety in general. And my sobriety right now is so much stronger and richer and deeper. And I was most attracted to the open-mindedness in the secular AA. I What happened for me besides starting my own, and my sponsor in LA, I've gone back a few times, has talked about that, like how I've changed. She's very by the book too, by the way. And I am not, I've never been, I've had a lot of issues. Uh, but I, I respond best. And the reason why that sponsor in LA was my sponsor is when I had something to say, even if she disagreed, she was not threatened by it. It wasn't about her. It was about what I had to say. So I learned a lot about that. And coming to secular AA, my God, I've never felt more like myself because of who I am, even genetically, having so many different influences. I find it very hard to judge a group, you know, and 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 I, I need to see inclusivity now. And I've never felt like it, like I have in secular AA. And I... I've, I've never been as active. So this must mean I'm at my own play. I've never been as active. I've never been as willing to step up. I volunteer. I'm in service. I was before. I've gotten those muscles, you know, in, in LA. But the way it was like, I almost feel like it prepped me for being here. <laughs> it's like the, the, they say in the prophecy, you don't know. Uh, I never knew how my life was going to open up and the beautiful sponsees that have come in my life. I mean, the way that the people, the women that I've met in um, secular AA and the sponsees that I've had have been such a, a kind of an anchor of my life. 
I'd said that before and I, I have sponsees in LA, but the way that they are here and the way that I sponsor too has completely changed. It's more about who I'm sponsoring than me and what I have to say <laughs> and, you know, following by the book. And um, I just, I mean, my own personal opinion is AA needs to open up. I see it slowly, but surely changing, you know, but it's, 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 it, it, it's so, uh, they're holding on so tightly the way the things used to be. And, um, and I feel like secular A has given me a, uh, a kind of a, a roadmap of how to uh, change <laughs> and how to bring up ideas in my meetings in LA. But most of my sobriety right now is secular AA. Uh I still, I'm in contact with my friends in LA who are in AA, but uh, I feel like secular AA for me has follows the principles more than the rules <laughs> or the ideas of a personality. It's the principles of the 12 steps. And, um, and that's how I sponsor now. And I try to, I, you know, I'm human, but um, it's so much more exciting to me now to be sober. And I have so much more to learn if I'm in a space like this. And so I'm going to, sh- oh God, it's been 20 minutes. So I'm going to shut up. Um, Thanks, Kimiko. That was awesome. <laughs> yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to go ahead and open up the phone line so anybody can call in if they would like to. And Kimiko, there was something you said that um, I could relate, a lot of what you said I could relate to, but when you were talking about how you learned how to adapt to your environment and become whatever you needed to become to survive, that was me. Uh, I grew up as a, as, in an army family and traveled around a lot. And no matter where I lived, it could be overseas. It could be in the North. It could be in the South. It could be wherever I would become whatever that culture was, <laughs> you know? And, um, I, I, uh, when I look back in my early days in AA, I actually used that coping mechanism when I got into AA because it was really a foreign experience for me. And people were talking in ways that, you know, was, I didn't talk that way. I didn't, I didn't grow up religious or anything. And so I used subcon not, not knowingly, but I just did that because it was natural for me to do. Well, anyway, just to make it this short, after I realized I was doing that many, many years later, I was almost kind of critical of myself that I did that because I was like, why would I be such a conformist? But now listening to you, it's actually something I could be proud of because it was actually a skill to develop, you know, to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It helped me survive and get through that time. And 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 I guess recovery is a is a process of change. And I've learned to kind of grow beyond that. And to recognize that. So thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, I, I just want to say, you know, I also moved around a lot. Um, and that's that was definitely a couple, almost like I went to 12 different schools. So uh, that was definitely a coping mechanism. It can be a superpower and also something used against you. So when awareness in between it is where uh, my sobriety lies these days. <laughs> yeah. It's almost kind of embarrassing when I think back to my youth about all the different characters I was. <laughs> Anyway, also, uh, and and I don't want to take up all all the time because I know Mary's got something to say. Another thing that you you mentioned that that um, I could relate to uh, from my own experience, my mother was mentally ill. And um, so I grew up in a household and I also grew up in a household where there's a lot of yelling and screaming. And, you know, we talk about trauma now having an impact on on addiction. And uh, for the longest time, I didn't recognize the trauma that that I had. But now it just seems to be so plain now that I, why wouldn't I have not seen that that was a traumatic experience um, when my mother would get taken away or, uh, or she would have these um, episodes and we couldn't talk about them. I mean, it was in our family, it was um, uh, a subject that we just wouldn't bring up, you know, and it was just awful. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I can relate to when, you, when you're talking about that. It's just nice to have a kindred spirit who can understand that. And I still have mental illness in my family. I have a younger brother who's, who's struggling with it as well, serious mental illness. Yeah, it's funny how people don't talk about things when they're in your childhood. Like something big will happen and then no one ever talked about it. And how do we absorb that? 
And then it always comes out later, I feel. And, you know, trauma awareness is part of maturing and um, part of recovery. And so I know that you're extra compassionate for people with mental illness now, Kimiko. I've seen that up close and personal. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a compassionate vibe for that, which I appreciate. Thank you, Mary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, alcoholism is a mental illness too. Well, I so recognize it when people talk about, well, of course now I've dealt with a lot of alcoholics, but growing up an alcoholic, it's insanity. You yeah. don't know what's going to happen next. You have to pretend that everything's okay. Or at least that's the messages that you're given. Once it blows over, we're just, uh, nothing ever happened. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and that's, you know, if you grow up with alcoholism, I totally understand that too. They don't, they don't want to talk about alcoholism just like they don't want to talk about mental illness. Yes. Nobody yeah. wants to talk about the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Except me. I'm usually the one that blurts out the thing that everyone is thinking. And then I get the blowback for it, but I can't not talk about the obvious. It's hard for me to keep my mouth shut in those circumstances. Bree has a comment. She says, uh, yes, trauma. I never knew anything about that until I stumbled into secular AA. Post-alcohol uh, post-alcohol withdrawal syndrome is reality in itself. I never really um, understood it or thought about it actually until I met Angela, you know, and she, and she was so in, into it. And, you know, I never, I never have even actually taken the time to read any of Gabor Mate's material on trauma, but um, I'm, I'm, beginning to understand, you know, what, what trauma is. And I think that I would take, I would take it to like the extreme levels, you know, but just, just not being safe, not feeling safe, you know, is, is traumatic um, in, in itself, you know, or, or not, not being able to predict what your environment's going to be from one day to the next is, is traumatic. And you learn, I guess, over time to find different ways of coping with, with that, with that kind of stuff that goes on. And I, definitely see how addiction becomes a coping mechanism for that kind of stuff, for sure. Well, I really appreciate you telling your story, Kimiko, because um, you do have, I like what you said about you don't judge groups now or Mm -hmm. the other because you felt like you were the other in so Mm -hmm. many different times in your life. Um, And just the fact that you're Japanese American is Mm -hmm. considered to be the other in the Caucasian world could be. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I know that you come from a, an awareness of that. And that's what I love about secular recovery is that it, I do feel it's more inclusive and diverse. And I'm looking for diversity in recovery. And like they say, recovery is not conformity. It doesn't have to be about conformity. And I felt like in traditional AA that it, it was all about conformity. And it was all about parroting everything. And it was more about group approval than it was about your own recovery. I, I think the principles are love, tolerance, and inclusion, and, and, and not that other parroting BS, personally. I totally agree. Oh, people are commenting. Yeah, people are commenting, yeah. Uh, yeah. Fred, Fred says that his mother suffered from mental illness, including suicide attempts after being sober in AA for 20-plus years. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a difficult thing, and you know when you talk about mental mental illness and mental health issues, uh, it's ironic, you know, Kimiko, you mentioned that you know alcoholism in itself, alcohol use disorder, is a mental uh, health issue, but uh, you know when when I was a new newly sober person and Alcoholics Anonymous, it seemed like uh, talking about an issue that was outside of my drinking was foreboding, uh, you know, and yeah, and, and it was like, um, if, unfortunately, at, at the group that I went to, and I'm not, I'm not going to generalize that all groups are this way, but the people that I was around, the, those that were most vocal, were assuring me that my problem was I was an alcoholic, and I shouldn't go to therapy and all this kind of stuff. But you know, I, and I always thought the same way as you, I said, well, just being an alcoholic in itself is mental illness. (laughs) Why, why, why wouldn't I be depressed or want to talk to a professional about this? But uh, I did, I did get that um, at that particular group. And unfortunately I listened to those loudest voices. I think that there were the majority of the people in the room who were quiet would have been supportive of me doing whatever I wanted to do. But gosh, the people that are so dogmatic, they're the ones that speak the loudest and they're the ones that will corner you and take you to the, you know, 
the woodshed. Yeah, and say, listen I, to me, this is what you need to do. <laughs> usually if somebody's really dogmatic is when I step away. I'm sensing that I'm right. This is the only way to do it. And what I love about secular AA is you're allowed to say what you want, and I'm not going to be threatened by that. I actually encourage you, if you have something thought that you don't understand or it's negative or you're not feeling like you're a part of or what is is please just talk about it it's you know it's honesty that's another um principle it's like so important and and if the if the group doesn't have a humility about it a humbleness that hey maybe we have something to learn from what you have to say you know instead of no, because I've definitely come from that tradition where you can't talk about anything. If you're an Al-Anon, you can't talk about AA, blah, if you, whatever it may be. You should be allowed to. I, I love the meetings where somebody's like, I hate it here. I hate you all. I fucking hate being here. And we'd be like, yay. Thank you so much for sharing. It's, Agreed. It's so important to be yes. And And everything is, what is outside issues? I mean, <laughs> if you got them, how can they be outside? I mean. <laughs> They're part of life. And, you know, we have more similarities than differences, I think, as far as our addictions go. So I don't, I'm not into that. You can't talk about it here thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think just sharing whatever's on your mind at that moment is what you can share. And and whatever you need, you yeah. know, to help you stay sober, therapy, Absolutely. meds, yes. whatever, whatever it whatever. is. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. about being honest and accountable for and it. The, the yeah. ego of someone telling you that you can't do therapy is just like. Oh, I was God. in a meeting where they said you can't take medication. And this girl had to go to the hospital. She wow. had a mental breakdown. Wow. That woman was dangerous. Was that in very California? Mm-hmm. A huge woman's meeting in a very respected. She's actually a therapist herself. Uh, sponsor. She had a little crew. Um, was telling this woman that I know you can't take meds. First, you know, and no, she's bipolar. She needs to take. Yeah. You know, I thought that that was a thing of the past. And my doctor told me, no, that she still hears that from her patients telling her that people in AA have told them not to do that, which is absolutely nuts. So but, dangerous. Oh he's a doctor. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, you were also mentioning, um, Kimiko, that you were talking about kind of your approach to recovery and AA. And I wonder if it was like me, it kind of sounded like you might be like me where it, you may have changed a little bit. Were you, were you kind of like a by the book person and then became less by the book? Can you kind of talk about your evolution and, and what, how you approach recovery now? Yes. Oh, that's a tricky question because I was, because I could only share what had been shared with me. And I had a sponsor who came out of Seattle. That's a very I don't know if anybody's from Seattle here, but the, the, the A there is very by the book and very strong, at least her AA. And um, I had a sponsee who was a friend of mine, and we actually lost our friendship at a point because I, I was like, you have to do this or you don't, or this is, because that's the way I, you know. And so I had to learn by experience. And, and then I come here, and it doesn't look anything like LAAA, the, the secular one. At least that's what I was thinking. And I was threatened by it. And then so I, I looked and go, why do I feel scared? What's going on? I love these women. Why, why do I need to judge? You know, and I had and so I did evolve and I've evolved so much. It's so different. Like before, if a sponsee has a different way of doing the steps, I, I'm so open to it. I'm like, let's talk about this. It's their sobriety. I'm there to support their sobriety and uh, help them not drink or act out. And, um, and definitely judgment is never, and shame like Brene Brown is says is not a tool. So it doesn't, it doesn't work. If it worked, it doesn't work. It just it makes doesn't work. Shame. It may work temporarily like cotton yeah. dogs or something, but all it does is spur that person into the same behavior, if not worse. I know that for myself when I shame myself. Or if I'm, you know, telling my son what he should or shouldn't, he's very good at spotting that in me. What did my friend said the other day, she said, you know, see if you have a great program, you know, you may have fans, but ask your closest family members what they think of your program, right? <laughs> ask my son, ask my husband how I'm doing today <laughs> with my program. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, I've learned to just be much more open and less judgmental and um, toward what somebody else has to say. And I particularly love people in secular AA. It's just like, 
people who are not alcoholics who become who got into AA. Now it's people who are in AA who've gone to secular AA. There's yes. a softening. There's an openness. Yes. There's um, a spiritual depth. There's a non-judgment. Um, and there's growth. There's growth. AA can, has, to me, stayed the same. You know, it took them forever to change a group of people from men and women, you know, like, how, what? Took a long time. So secular is opening up that way, too. And to be to find it in the Bible Belt of the South, it's like maybe there's, every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I feel like, wow, what a great gift it is to move to Savannah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's probably in L.A., but I, I didn't see it there where where I was, you know. And I can't wait to maybe bring that there too, you know. That's a, that would be awesome. But yeah, the Bible Belt, I think there's such a need for it here because the traditional is so Christian that so many people are looking elsewhere. And we have four meetings a week here. So it just goes to show how popular Secular A is and that there is such a need for it here. Every and I like how secular welcomes people who do have religion or who don't. It's not like exactly. you can only believe this. No. You know, it's just welcoming. And um Yeah, yeah it shouldn't it shouldn't really AA. matter. It shouldn't really it matter. Should matter. Yeah, yeah, what what anyone does or, or doesn't believe. And yeah, Dale points out uh, correctly that LA had some of the earliest secular AA meetings. Yay. Um, yeah. Do you think LA progressive mm-hmm. as it yeah. is? Yeah. There was uh, actually the this secular AA movement um that if you want to call it a movement, but the growth of secular AA meetings, I guess, really took off because of two women in Los Angeles. They belonged to the um, Hollywood We Agnostics group. And what was interesting is they um, they loved this meeting. It was a secular meeting. And they would they would sat around in one of their apartments, uh, Dorothy and Pam. They, they were in sitting in Dorothy's apartment and they were wondering to each other. They said, are there other groups out there like this? Because at that time, these groups weren't really communicating with each other, you know, but you had these secular groups in New York, you had secular groups in, um, I think you even had one in Atlanta at the time you had, you had them all, all over the place, but they just weren't connecting. So they found out that these other groups existed. They said, you know what, we need to have a party and invite all these people here. So they had their first conference in Santa Monica, California in 2014. And from that, everybody stayed in touch. Social media was a thing in 2014, and it just grew from from that. It was just an incredible story. So, yeah, kind of out of L.A. is where all of this growth happened, really. Hollywood, we agnostics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great story. I love, I love listening to – I love history. So the, the, to hear her story was pretty cool. That is awesome. And, uh, you know, I'm in the Valley, which is kind of like, if you live in the Valley, you never go to Hollywood or the West side. <laughs> it's like a different town. It's like South Carolina to, to, so I, yeah. I wasn't exposed to it. I was exposed to my little group of thousands of women, but they were in, oh, I would say a thousand women in, in the Valley of where I was. And I would have friends say, well, I don't believe in God. And this is a problem in this meeting. Cause I have to accept that I'm, agnostic or atheist and they would talk about it out loud i never felt judged that way as much in my meeting like if you didn't believe in god whatever but i don't know if she never talked about an agnostic meeting i'd I'd love to in those big groups talk about that you know it wasn't talked about in my valley women's group Mm -hmm. you know agnostic aa beyond belief and so cool it started and i don't doubt it you know I'm the same way. I was like, I was in uh, AA for like 25 years and didn't, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I didn't know anything about secular AA meetings um, being, you know, existing. And it wasn't until I went through this process of where I kind of realized I was an atheist that I even started looking for it. And then it was just like, just blew me away. Oh yeah. And someone mentioned here, I think it was uh, Ross or someone, I think it was Ross mentioned. Yeah. He Googled and it says that it started in 1975. So ever since 1975, you know, they've had these meetings and who knew, but you know, I, I was like, you know, I, I was, I was doing okay. I was, I was, uh, I was staying sober in my traditional group and I was okay. And it really wasn't until I kind of some conflict happened or some discomfort on my part that I started seeking it out. And that discomfort came when I was kind of describing my evolution of thinking about the steps secularly, practically, rather than spiritually, and kind of dismissing the need for a higher power. When I started talking like that openly at my home group, 
that caused a lot of friction. And I think that's when I recognized that I needed to, um, I needed to flee and start something else. (laughs) (laughs) And you fled. I fled. (laughs) It was either fight or flight, they say, right? (laughs) We're living in such a great time. You, the meetings are there. I'm also part of this uh, Asian Asian AA group on Zoom. Like who knew? Because I could tell you in my big, big meetings, women's meetings, there was maybe one other Asian gal there. And so I I never saw that. And this meeting has like, you know, 200 people on Sundays um, and they've started in New York and L.A. and, you know, things like that. So there there are so many meetings out there to 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 help you feel like you belong. It's just taking that action like you did. Right. You felt discomfort and you took that action. And then here's this community. I mean. I feel so lucky. I don't yeah. know how to communicate. I'm just going to say hi to everybody. Just say hi. <laughs> I can't do uh, comments. Yeah. Yeah. Dale's from um, Florida. Well, he, well, actually, he's not in Florida now, but he was in Florida for a long time. And so there was a group that was started there in 1985. I think the 1980s, and this is really interesting, was really a period of growth for secular AA meetings, too, because a lot of the meetings seemed to start, seem to have started around that time. Um, which was when I was first getting sober, but who, who, who knew, who knew? Um, you were also talking about sponsorship, Kimiko, and I wonder if you might want to talk a little bit more about that, about how you do handle sponsor sponsees now and, and how that has changed. Well, I followed their lead, right? Whereas before I'd be like, okay, this is how I did it. And this is the book I use. And this is this, I'm like, okay, what's a book? that you're responding to. There's the woman's way through the 12 steps. There's, um, you know, the skeptics guide we were talking about today in an earlier meeting and uh, the gentle guide. Uh, there's all kinds of books, right. That, that have the 12 steps and I follow their lead and it's very different um, each time. Some people believe in God. I have a sponsee in LA. Um, she's very kind of religious. And, um, and then, sponsees here who are not at all right and so uh we follow uh, uh um and i you know because my roots like you uh john are so in traditional aa the 12 and 12 um if somebody wants to I have a sponsee a new sponsee from my asian group in on sunday she's just like i want to just follow that book so we we go very traditional tell me what to do I have no issue with it. Although her, as we were talking about the first, second and third step, she's not religious. (laughs) She's like, Oh, mine is this. And mine is that. So I can bring my secular AA experience, the other um, books that I've read and um, the people I've talked to, to her experience too. So it's like they feed each other in a way. Um, That's how I feel. I feel like I speak many different languages in recovery. So if you want to, if you want to do it the God way, I can do that. (laughs) I can, you know, if you want to, if you want to look at the steps in a spiritual way and talk, communicate them that that's fine. Uh, If you just want to be purely practical, if you just don't want to have anything to do with them at all, that's cool too. (laughs) Absolutely same. Exactly. And, and secular is so practical. You know, it's a very practical thing. It's not, you know, it's not woohoo. It's just practical. It's so practical. But if you want, if you have a spiritual, I love talking about, you know, your spiritual path. I want to learn from you, my sponsee. And um, I always do. I always do. No matter what, if I'm open and willing. So yeah, I'm, I'm um, grateful for that. And, And totally gobsmacked, you know, like, Oh my God! How did this happen? I, I, you know, I, I, I never would have been able to predict it. And, th- and again, if I feel like somebody's, well, I just have a very open-minded sponsor and uh, a lot of open-minded friends, and that's where I'm heading towards. It's just going to get more and more that way as I get more, you know, have spent another day in sobriety. I also think I also like what you had to say about, you know, it's their program and. One thing that I've learned is that, you know, meet people where they are. Don't, don't try to bring them where, where you are. And it's, yeah, you know, uh, I took this course on, on to become a peer support specialist. And one of the things that they always say is um, allow, you know, find out what a person's goals are for their recovery. And then your, your job is just to help them meet those, reach those goals, you know, and you do that just by, 
you know, sharing your experience and how you reach those goals and figuring out what they want to overcome, you know, and I, I, I think that's a nice way, nice way to approach it. And also to also point people to resources that they can access to help themselves. To help themselves. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. I can't do it for them. And I wish I could. I still have to stop myself. I'm like, oh, uh, uh, it's me yeah. wanting to make them feel better. Can't do no. that. And what no. you're doing, Kimiko, that is the best way to sponsor someone, in my opinion. And but sometimes, um, like if you're new, and I was this way to a certain extent, I I was like, just I just need you to show me what to do, and I will do it. I know I just need a path. You know, I just need you to tell me what to do, and I can understand why people want that. But that comes with some danger. It comes with some risk because there's a lot of people out there who are more than happy to tell you what to do. Uh, but then again, you have someone like you, which is really taking the correct approach where you say, tell me where you want to go. How do you want to get there? And that's more difficult for people to really understand. And so, yeah, so I always, I always recommend to anyone who's looking for a sponsor to take your time. And beware of the person who tells you that they know what you should do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they will tell you what you should do 24-7. Yeah. There is that kind of sponsor and that, you know, has a crew and they all do the same thing and they all, you know, and, and they, they kind of lionize that person. And then I tell that person, well, then I'm not for you. You know what I mean? No, I'm, a, I'm your friend, but I'm, I'm not going to be able to, you know, every five minutes tell you what to do. Although there are the younger people in, like you were saying, the newbies, like my new sponsee who, who does need a little bit of direction and wants it and tells me that, you know, and um, there's, yeah, it's per person and it's not a black and white thing, you know, a a very cut and dry thing. And I, um, I used to be very threatened by that in the beginning, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Tell me. And and I, I might say the wrong thing and blah, 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 blah. And now I'm not. So I'm at that stage right now. But, you know, I pick up that phone a lot. I talk to other people, my friends in the program, a la Mary and other people who I respect, who are further along than me, truth be told. And, um, and I get their, their feedback. We don't do this alone. At least I don't at all. Thank goodness. Because my head, I don't know. Not a good place to be by yourself. <laughs> yeah. And I always want to be by myself. I love it. You know? <laughs> it was dangerous when I first got to Savannah. I do see what people say. Like, it's a very drinking town, John. It's like one of the most drinking towns. Oh, yeah. It's all about drinking. drinking. Yeah. It's like New Orleans. It's a. It's like a, a yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. Oh, it's open drink policy. All of that. <laughs> oh, Gary, you can walk around drunk all the day oh, long. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and um and my whole block loves to socialize. I love my neighbors more than anything. They're the most beautiful people. Nobody's sober here, but um on my block. But they all love to get together in each other's backyards with a drink, starting from about four or five o'clock and talk. And I'm here with my LaCroix with the other kids. <laughs> and I thought in the beginning, I was like, Oh my god, what am I gonna do? It was a little dangerous. I thought, God, I could drink. Nobody knows me. I didn't yet have my feet in secular AA yet. I didn't feel connected to the meetings here yet. So it was a tricky time. And um, I'm so glad that, like I said before, the equal and opposite reaction, that the sprite here is so strong and so deep and so uh, open-minded that I drew to it even stronger, you know, so uh, than I thought I would, you know, and it did save me. But those thoughts... Maybe I can get away with it. Nobody knows me. I'm in the town where everybody drinks. These neighbors are great. They don't know that I'm sober. Those thoughts. And now I go, okay, yeah, you're still an alcoholic. You think that way. <laughs> I'm not threatened by any of my thoughts that way. You know, I just know that that's par for the course, you know. Someone was asking for an update about ICSA. And I don't know. I, I just tell you what I do know. ICSA being the International Conference of Secular AA. And it is supposed to be taking place uh, in D.C. It will happen this time. Uh, it seems like COVID has settled down. So it will be taking place in D.C. And it's going to be at the same time frame as it was before, which is that that weekend of, of Halloween, you know, October 31st to whatever. So um, that that is still happening. But I will tell you this about the Secular AA organization is they do need some help right now. And what they need is someone who can work on a website 
because their website needs to be updated. And I'll be frank, I'll be frank with you. I was the guy that was doing that for a while and I just can't do it. And I said, you know what? There are thousands of people out there that go to secular A meetings. There's got to be somebody who can do a website. So if you're listening to this and you know how to work on a website, a WordPress website, you can actually turn it to whatever website you want to. Contact the Secular AA organization at secularaa at gmail.com. Let them know you'd like to help because it's, you know, it's, I've done it. I've done that sort of service and it was very rewarding while I was doing it, but it's got to be in your heart to do it. And it's not in me anymore to do it. I just have given all I can. So I'm not going to do any more of that. Someone else has to step up <laughs> enough of that. So yeah. So right now the, 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 the information about the conference is not on the website. Uh, I don't think it's been updated yet and they really need someone who can go in there and update that. So, but they will post it in the, on the Facebook page and and so forth so um but yeah it will be happening and i do plan on going to that um, conference when it does happen me too yeah it'll be fun have you been to one of those kimiko i haven't although my husband's family's from dc so i have a place to stay when it's happening (laughs) um no i've never been ever i think you know uh the pandemic kind of put a pause on everything here for my last four years of secular AA. So, or three and a half. So, um, I I'd love to go. Yeah. You know, it it was weird. So we had, we had this conference in uh, Toronto in 2018. Right. And then we were supposed to have one in 2020, but then COVID came and then we thought, Oh, we could have it in 2021. And no, COVID was still here. <laughs> and it might still be here in 2020. It probably will, you know, it but people, be. you know, being vaccinated and, and everything, it's a little bit safer to to do. So um, anyway, I'll be. I, I highly recommend it to anyone to just start thinking about it now because the one in Toronto was fabulous. And I, I met a lot of friends that are my friends now. And it, it was so supportive in where I was in recovery at that moment that I took the energy from that conference and came back to Savannah and planted a seed of secular AA here. And later now we have four or five meetings. So yeah, it's going to be in Bethesda Halloween weekend of this year. That's pretty good, Mary, that you got that many meetings in Savannah. How big of a city is it? 300,000 ish. Wow. That's incredible. Small town. Yeah. 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 We have strong community. We have, I think, well, we do have meetings every day of the week now in Kansas City, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but it is a, the metropolitan area is a lot, a lot larger here. Um, and, and that happened over a period of time. But it's, it's really nice to have that, to have access like that. And are most of your meetings, um, are you back face to face now? We have three face to face, one online um, and one in the works to be face to face. So three are face to face. We meet um, either in a church hall or out side in a park and the one in the park has like 40 people on Sundays and we so big we have to split into two groups that looks like a beautiful setting underneath that oak tree yes that's That's where it is yeah it's magical it's awesome well Kimiko thank you so much for agreeing to come on and sharing your story it was really nice to meet you and I just love I you know this is the best kind of episode to do where I can just sit back have a cup of coffee listen to someone's story relate to it as I could relate to yours so well hearing your own story through someone else is I think the magic of AA to be quite honest with you to know that you know hey you're not alone you're not yeah Thank I'm you. Part of a beautiful group. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.